Investors Chronicle. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome back to Lee and the IC. I'm Alex Newman, an Associate Editor at the Investors Chronicle, and I'm really pleased to be here in the FT studios again for my first conversation with Lord John Lee of 2024. This is our fifth episode, so the quick disclaimer I'm about to make will be familiar to anyone who's listened before. Everything we talk about in this podcast is filtered through the thoughts, actions, feelings, and experience of one of the most seasoned personal investors in the country, which means while our discussion is intended purely as an educational tool, we're often giving a couple of angles uh, in the multitude of views that make up a market. Also, nothing in this podcast should be taken as financial advice or a recommendation to buy or sell shares. This month, we're going to return to our regular format by taking a deep dive into one of the stocks John owns and how it fits in with his broader view of the UK economy and current investing options. We're also going to discuss some of the biggest changes in investing in the more than six decades John's been managing his own money and concluding with a roundup of the goings-on in his portfolio. Anyway, let's get to it. John, a very warm welcome to you today and a belated Happy New Year. How are you doing? And Happy New Year to you uh, and to uh, all listeners. Indeed. So let's kick off with our focus stock this month, Secure Trust Bank, which is the one I wanted to talk about. So with a market value of £130 million, this is, by some distance, the smallest company we've so far chosen for a deep dive. And as such, I'm just going to assume the listeners aren't entirely familiar with the group, though I'm sure many are. So just to bring us up to speed, could you just briefly introduce Secure Trust, what it does, and your involvement as an investor? Mm. Yes, well, Secure Trust is a, a is a fully fledged banking business, taking deposits from from retail customers and and lending, and it has a a very well balanced lending portfolio. It has a slightly curious genesis or origin in that really it was for a number of years uh, effectively owned and controlled by Arbuthnot Latham, the larger banking firm, private banking firm, although Arbuthnot is is public. And uh, then gradually developed its independence and uh, Arbuthnot sold down their stake. Uh, and so now I think I'm right in saying that Arbuthnot doesn't have any holding at all in Secure Trust. So it, uh, um, you know, it travels uh, and lives independently. It's a very, basically a very conservatively run business and, uh, and bank. You know, I've been in, I've been in it for um, a few years, and I paid a couple of years ago up, up to twelve pounds for the shares. But um, uh, with smaller banks being out of favour and the decline in 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 the small cap sector generally, um, they came down to just over uh, over five pounds, uh, and I bought uh, again or more. Um, at, um, at lower prices, five hundred and seventy-five was my lowest buy to around 600p, in other words, about half of what I was paying two years ago. So it's quite extraordinary, uh, despite the fact that the, you know, the business has, has grown and expanded. So the, the, the net result at, at the current £7 level uh, is that I think they are ridiculously undervalued. The P ratio is around five or even less than that, dependent on uh, what forecast one takes. The dividend yield is about six and a half when I was buying it a little bit lower, it was yielding around 7%. Uh, and they're very, very conservative on, on dividend payout. The dividend is covered four times, and that's their policy, which I actually I think personally is a little bit on the excessive side, although 
you know, I'm all for uh, caution and, and uh, conservative approach with banks. Um, but uh, I don't think they need four times cover. So, you know, they could release even more if they wanted to by way of uh, dividend, which, uh, you know, would help uh, to, well, could help to bring back the, the, you know, the, the shares. But uh, the rating is, I think, very, very low indeed. Uh, and everyone acknowledges that really totally without justification. I mean, look, just looking over the next two or three years, you know, if they don't manage to get the rating and value up, then I think they are very vulnerable to a, uh, a takeover from a, a larger banking or financial business. And the other point to make, I think, is that the asset value, and this is a hard asset value, excluding goodwill and similar, uh, is £17 a share. So yeah. we've got a £17 NAV against a £7 share price. Yeah, so I mean, within UK banking, for, for, for those listeners who might not be specialists, for some years now we've had these, these very steep discounts to book value or tangible book value, which is sometimes what people look at with, with banking stocks. And I think, I think I'm right in saying that they are, well, that would put them in close to 70%, so almost a, a sort of two-thirds a discount. Huge, a huge discount. So in other words, investors in the markets are saying that this is a business that's only going to destroy asset value or equity value in, 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 in the future, which obviously we can, you know, we can come on to and some of the, the, the reasons why a secure trust will, would say um, that that's not going to happen. Just to take a step back, I suppose the nuts and bolts of this for the, you know, for a non-bank specialist or someone who's just looking at a secure trust and maybe comparing them to more familiar names, you know, does business finance, retail finance, real estate backed finance, short term credit and savings accounts, these are all pretty standard product lines for a bank. So why is is secure trust like or unlike the high street UK names that people might be a bit more familiar with? Well, they would say, and, uh, you know, I, I... I, I believe them that they are more conservative uh, than than most banks. Uh, you know, I think a, a couple of years ago, um, you know, that they, they uh, decided to become even more uh, conservative. Um, you know, being conscious that the economy is going to go through a difficult period and customers are going to go through a difficult period with high interest rates, and therefore, obviously, they wanted to avoid. Uh, excessive risk and and potential bad debts. And so they have been very conservative in their lending. The four times dividend cover, I think, you know, is indicative of that. I can't think of another um, financial group with with, uh, that size of of cover. And also uh, on their unsecured lending, it is is very focused. So, for example, they do specialise in uh, in lending on on jewellery, uh, and also furniture, uh, you know, where the, which they believe are, are you know that much more uh, secure, as it were, and um, less of a risk than uh, than other sectors. So, so within their overall lending, they they do adopt, and I believe they do adopt, you know, a, a far more conservative approach. And I suppose compared to the high street banks, they're not in they're not in the mortgage game in in, in the way that um, you know. Sort of NatWest, Lloyd's, Barclays, etc. are, and as you point out, I suppose this is one of the opportunities for the banking sector that if you have a niche product line, jewellery, um, second-hand car finance, for example, and there's not the scale that would interest the appetites of the larger players, then that is an opportunity to potentially make above average um, uh, returns and, uh, and 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 good interest income. And I think they see they see a clear path ahead to grow the business. Yeah. You know, I think they think in their capital markets presentation, their lending I think was was over the three billion mark, and I think I think 
you know, they're aiming to get it up over the next two or three years to, to four billion or something like that. So that there is a growth plan, but hopefully um, uh, adopting all, all along the line the conservative approach. With banking, in essence, it's about lending at a higher rate, isn't it, than you are paying to your depositors, all while managing all these complex things like capital, your cost base and, and risk. In the case of Secure Trust, their deposits, they draw a lot from retail customers via fixed-term bonds, ISAs and access sure. accounts. And that's a really competitive market here, isn't it? And they they can't sit on their hands in the way that, say, a NatWest can, because NatWest, for example, can bank on the inertia of people, sure. uh, people's sort of current accounts not wanting to move them. How do they? How do they navigate something? Uh, you know, that's really a detailed question. I think you, yeah, you'd have right. to ask have to ask them. Uh, you know, obviously, I'm a, a little more broad brush as a um, uh, as an investor. But coming back, of course, to their their their, their net asset value of seventeen pounds, they have a, they have quite a lot of their own capital mm. to to lend out as well, which obviously is uh, is beneficial. And I don't believe that they take. Um, deposits, wholesale deposits from the from the market generally, as it were. But I think they've got a very loyal band of uh, of retail depositors who who presumably be, been with them for a long time, and uh, you know, like the uh, I suspect a slightly higher rate of interest that they get than they would get from deposits with a bank. Yeah, I noticed um, their 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 chairman Lord Forsyth. I was just looking through the annual report. Whose career as an MP and subsequently as a Lord sort of overlapped a little bit with your career in Parliament. Is is Lord Forsyth someone you you know well? Or is Very, I, I, yes, I know him well. Uh, he, he's um, chairman of the Association of Conservative Peers. He's a he's probably one of the most respected and active peers that uh, Westminster challenges his own government from time to time uh, and um, very much focused on the financial world. Uh, I think he was with, after his ministerial career, I think I'm right in saying he was with um, Solomon Brothers for a, right. I think that's uh, for right, a yeah. period and um, is you know, heavily plugged into the to the financial world. So I would have thought he brings you know, good, good guidance to... Uh, uh, to secure trust and the the chief executive there, David McCready, who I talk to from time to time, you know he's he's a you know a very a very uh, cautious, solid, solid in the nicest way, traditional a banker, uh, Scottish banker I believe, or even better, uh, <laughs> <laughs> even more cautious. Uh, so all in all, I you know I think it's um you know it's it's uh, uh, an attractive investment story and uh, and opportunity uh, and is uh, you know I would say a, a useful holding of mine um, delivering me a, you know a very nice dividend is it a stock that you own as a play on the UK economy or do you just look at it at, in terms of the business itself and, and what it can do rather than a, a bet on you know the, the the UK economic GDP growth or whatever it may be no I'm focused very much on on individual companies. And I'm not too too concerned with the the macro aspect because the whole point is is uh, with investing in in smaller cap stocks that that um, even if the country isn't booming as it were, um, you know they can still do very well in the niches that they're uh, that they're in. And actually, um, I would say the majority of my uh, small cap holdings over the last um, few months, those who have reported have actually, you know, reported that, that they're trading well. You know, uh, concurrent technologies, we might talk on a little bit later, Hollywood Bowl, for example, uh, Nichols, Vimto, you know, all these have been reporting um, quite a good underlying 
growth in, in, in profits. So um, I take the view with, with Secure Trust that there is an opportunity for them to, to grow as a niche business, fundamentally uh, significantly undervalued as far as I can see, uh, and I've not come across any major negative with them. And uh, like uh, so many uh, in my portfolio, small caps in my portfolio, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think that uh, it's a sort of an each-way bet that either they will grow and develop or a predator will, will, will come along and this 2024 could well be the year of the takeover. Banking shares have always been a mainstay of, of, the, of the UK market at various sizes and scales. Have you always adopted that approach to this sector in terms of sizing and a niche focus, or have you invested in banks at, at both ends of the scale? No, I haven't past? invested in larger banks, the, right. the, the uh, high street banks. Why, why is that? Basically because they are uh, and have been subject to government interference. Uh, uh, if you recall, uh, you know there, there was a there was a, a directive uh, that banks shouldn't pay any dividends, for example, during the pandemic. During the yeah. during the, the the pandemic, and so you know the, the, there is, uh, I think, a, you know, a, a much greater governmental influence um, uh, there, as it were. Whereas the niche players have a a rather greater degree of freedom, uh, and uh, you know if we. If we get a change of government, uh, you know, more left of centre government comes in, uh, then I would have thought, uh, if anything, they'd be probably even more involved or more potentially uh, controlling. So uh, I tend to steer clear of the the high street banks. But uh, uh, a niche bank like Secure Trust within my overall portfolio uh, is, you know, is quite um, uh, comfortable from my point of view. It's an interesting point, I think, because that's it's a criticism often levelled at the, the UK banking sector that, you know, because of its very tight connections to the property market, that it is this kind of quasi-state mm. um, uh, sector and very hard to unpack its relationship with government going, you know, going forward. But, um, but you know, stepping outside the, the very, very high-profile banks may be maybe a, a way for investors to sort of play finance, which is... Yeah. That, that certainly is, is more my focus. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, bank shares, you know, might be a constant, you know, throughout your investing career in the, in the market, but a lot else has changed, John. And that, and that kind of brings me to the topic I wanted to talk to you about this month, which is, I suppose, in broad terms, the modern history of private investing and the changes you've seen since you started managing your own money. I mean, there have been lots of, big innovations in the world of private investing in, I suppose, the past half century. But the the rise of, we've not really talked about this much on the podcast before, the rise of passive investing and indexation, and I suppose the demise of the private investor that that is involved, might be the biggest of those changes. Warren Buffett once said that Jack Bogle, who founded Vanguard, the, the index provider, had, you know, had done more for the individual American investor than anyone in history. Do you share that enthusiasm for the way that um, indexation and, and the popularization of passive investing has has drawn more people are in or, or, or has that been to the detriment of uh, I suppose broader investing private investing culture uh, well I, I think as far as uh, as far as most people are concerned uh, you know having vehicles like Vanguard and and, um, and others where where larger funds uh, uh, track or handle 
people's monies, as it were. And obviously, it makes it easier for people. And, you know, but therefore, one can well understand, you know, the growth of those of those vehicles. But I do think, personally, it's a pity. And, um, you know, I, I've certainly endeavoured to do what I can to, to encourage the personal investor uh, and the private investor. Uh, and sadly, um, those taking their own decisions have been in decline, and uh, I, I would accept that. But I think it. I think it's a pity because I think people, most people, do assume that um, that one needs to to spend a huge amount of time to handle one's own portfolio, or it's extremely difficult or extremely complicated. Whereas you know, I personally believe that um, uh, there are only two things that you need for successful investing, and that is patience and common sense. And patience is the uh, is the most important. And of course, sadly, with many of the small caps, they have required a lot of patience, really, with the way they have drifted down in 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 value over the last two or three years. Uh, and thus, I believe at the moment, you know, do present uh, a considerable buying opportunity. And then, of course, I think regulations have also played a part as well. You know, there's far less freedom now um, for stockbroking firms or similar to you know to recommend individual stocks um you know they have to be approved by their by their you know credit committees or investment committees individuals in broking firms are very reluctant to put their neck out when i first started in stockbroking many years ago you know the the senior partner would buy a line of shares in x and then in the afternoon you know phone a whole range of clients and say look i've bought you know this line of shares i really you know like the story i really think you should have some so there's a much more personal involvement and you know today it's much more formalized and, and much more institutional i think it's a great pity really and also uh, i think you know, on a on a on a broader canvas uh, you know i think i think we all accept that financial education our schools separate topic you know is really very, very limited at uh, at best nothing has really encouraged the the retail investor and then uh, to a, another hobby horse of mine you know i really do think it's a tragedy that that our main TV channels, indeed virtually all our TV channels, have never covered the stock market or investment opportunities. And we've got some great businesses in the UK um, which would make very interesting television uh, and you know present great investment opportunities. But, but these really aren't brought into people's homes. And uh, so I think you know, the, the, the lack of television involvement has, has played a, quite a big part in this. One medium which which did used to do this, I, to an extent still does, the, the print media. I was just looking back uh, kind of to the beginning of your career as a, a as a private investor to the the early 60s and you know reading accounts of Jim Slater's capitalist column in the in the Telegraph. I mean it seems that, that that was a moment where private investing really captured the popular imagination. Obviously the the circulation of of daily newspapers was a lot wider and therefore there's yes. a kind of a network effect there of more people reading about exciting sure. shares but at the same time that was a, a time of higher frictional cost of private investors you know broking fees and, and the like was that popularity really evident at the time do you think and and, and what has changed is it, a, is it a case of that was the you know the, the, the jim slater capitalist column was at the time the equivalent of i don't know cryptomania in that there were you know, he was able to, for for a period, able to spot, you know, very high rising shares, and no one can do that forever. And actually, patience will always wane once the, you know, the the optimism subsides. I think that's it's probably true. I think there has been a, a, a you know, a decline in in 
Um, well, it's been obviously declining in 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 readership of traditional newspapers, anyway, as it were. But within that, I think there has been a a, a decline in the in the, the you know, in the city sections. I mean, there are one or two exceptions, but I think you're 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 right. I think also, sadly, over the years in this country, for a, for a mix of reasons, we haven't really developed and encouraged the sort of the entrepreneurial uh, uh, investor. Uh, or businessman. I think, for example, in America, um, the stock market is is much more frequently talked about, um, you know, by your average person. And you only have to look at the numbers of people who who, who go to uh, Warren Buffet's AGM, as it were, thousands to hear, you know, the great man talk. Not obviously, things haven't been helped, obviously, by things that have gone wrong, like the Woodford saga, uh, for example. But as I say, I think I think the excess of, of, of regulation, and, and I'm, I'm all for, for, you know, protecting against, you know, serious and gross abuse. But I think overall it's gone too far. And, and this is why I come back to, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the total failure of, of television, which was, after all, the dominant media and still is as far as um, uh, m- many people with, with money or money to invest uh, is concerned. Uh, you know, all this has, has played a part. Uh, and I know there have been delegations to see the Chancellor of the Exchequer and from the city, you know, to try and encourage him to to do something to actually, you know, bring about a, a change in mood. And there's been a suggestion of a uh, an ISA that should be just British or Britain-focused to try and encourage... UK investment to stimulate the the stock market. So there are a number of things that that that, that can be done, but I agree with you that there has been a, a decline in in uh, in the in sort of private investing, uh, and I hope that somehow we can reverse that. Just to return to the, the I suppose the the, the long term passive story, just by devil's advocate a little bit. I mean, when it comes to the kind of investing you do, John, I, I wonder if some people might ask the question, you know. One, why not settle for the market average? Because, you know, over time that tends to be better than just putting it in, in, a, in, a, in a savings account and buy a, buy a cheap global or UK equity track or whatever it is and, and, you know, just spend more time doing non-investing things. So I suppose that's, that's one question. The other one, you know, you like businesses that are conservatively uh, managed. One, I suppose, conservative approach to the management of one's own personal finances is to say... Well, I like this intellectual exercise of investing. It, make, you know, I feel really engaged in the world and 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 learning lots lots all the time and and how the world changes. But I'm worried about overweighting my own ability to sift through the tsunami of information and price points and valuation cases and just sifting that market's worth of companies and information is. It, it seems so daunting that I'm just going to delegate. It to, you know, a passive product which sort of filters in a in a you know in an average way f- for me. Can you understand? I, I can that? understand that totally. You know, obviously a lot of people have gone down that route and will go down that um, uh, that route. But of course they pay for it. Mm. Uh, you know, they, there are initial upfront fees in investing in these products, and then usually an annual fee. Uh, I mean, fees have as a, as a, a generalisation been coming down. Because I think the feeling was that fund management, you know, was too lucrative. But uh, I think there is a there is a, a clear decision that individuals have to make. Um, are they are they you know, prepared to spend a little time 
on their own portfolio? Do they enjoy taking their own decisions uh, and, and learning? Uh, or or um, do they essentially want someone else to do it for them? Uh, and, uh, you know, that is a fundamental decision that that people have to take. Now, in my case, for example, you know, I... I you know, I I love the individual businesses that I'm involved in. Uh, you know, I live them, I breathe them, I keep in contact with them. Uh, if anything, uh, I think I could be criticised probably for being too loyal to many of the companies or some of the companies uh, that I'm in, that I'm invested in. But uh, you know, nevertheless, to me, I've had a, a huge amount of satisfaction and pleasure and interest from uh, being a. Uh, private investor. You know, I like to think I've done it overall as well, if not a little better than I would have done uh, had I invested in, you know, through a, uh, some form of um, uh, of, um, uh, of larger fund. But um, each to their own. That, that, that has to be basically the, uh, the message. But uh, I'm all for encouraging more private investors. And I mean, we should make the point as well, passive investing is not just a one-way street, is it? There's there's often sub-decisions to make within that, you know, how much are you allocating to various passive themes or, or, or kinds of assets? So it's not it's not necessarily as straightforward as... It's not, well, it's not necessarily straightforward. And then, of course, you know, certain um, uh, individuals who, who are regarded as investment stars um, dra- attract a huge amount of following or... or Take a company like Scottish Mortgage, for example, yeah. you know, which uh, has had a tremendous track record. Uh, and everyone was therefore saying, you know, well, we must put money in Scottish Mortgage and commentators were saying that. And and I know many, many people who, you know, bought Scottish Mortgage. You know, to me, Scottish Mortgage had a great record, but I thought uh, that, that, that really its best days were in the past. Right. Uh, and a lot of people who went in uh, in the last two or three years have you know lost significant amounts of money. Now, uh, you know, Scottish mortgage may well come again, probably will. But um, you know, I, I'm not sure the glory days uh, of yesteryear will be replicated. Another big, uh, maybe the, the final big shift I just want to touch on um, has been well, at least until a couple of years ago, has been for forty years of generally for falling rate environment i mean we're now back on a more historically normalized footing for interest rates if um you know if you believe what many economists and investors now think is going to persist for for the for the coming years what have you made i suppose of this 40 year window and maybe the more important question here is have you found your pre-1980s investing muscle memories sort of kicking back in now that we're in a high interest Rate environment. I know you said you don't always pay attention to the the macro. It's not a determinant for your investment. Well, I remember. Decisions. I remember in my in my stockbroking years. We're going back, I think, to the nineteen the nineteen sixties, early sixties. Interest rates were up to about fifteen percent, and I re, I remember some you know some huge debentures and loan stock uh, uh, yields uh, at that stage. So, over my uh, sixty or seventy years of uh, of investing. Uh, you know, I've seen interest rates up and and down. You know, one seen uh, three or four significant bear markets. But o- overall, I like to think that uh, you know that that one has seen a growth in in uh, uh, inequities uh, and a growth in in dividends as well. And certainly, you know, I, I've uh, benefited over the uh, over the the years. But obviously, interest rates um, do play a big part. 
And of course, now we, we are in a, I think it's accepted that we're now going to see a falling of, uh, of interest rates. But obviously, this is subject to the, the world situation. And it's a dangerous world out there. There the, so many flashpoints. The world is a tinderbox, I'm afraid. But insofar as uh, commentators are agreed on one thing, it is that we are moving to a lower interest rate period. And, and you know, there should be some interest rate cuts during 2024. Now, that's going to mean that private equity business is going to be able, I think, to to um, uh, to use debt, cheaper debt, to actually become more active and fund and finance uh, takeover bids and similar. And that's why I think that 2024 could well be uh, a uh, a year of the, of the takeover. And certainly, I'd be surprised and disappointed if uh, you know come December this year. Um, uh, you know, I, I haven't hadn't been on the receiving end of, of one or two uh, takeovers because when I look through my portfolio, you know, I realise that so many are, are, are vulnerable because of the uh, the low level of, of uh, UK small caps particularly. Just to, I suppose, round that point on, uh, which I, I neglected to do earlier on Secure Trust, I mean, you would obviously have to pay a premium if you were going to buy that business, but £130 million for a profitable UK bank, fully fully regulated, fully licensed, doesn't seem like a huge price for, you know, vis-a-vis Mars buying Hotel Chocolat. They obviously want to do something different with that business. If you had a very big entity looking to make a splash in, in the UK, potentially, that's, um, you know, it's almost a rounding error, isn't it? For Well, you're paying £130 million for, uh, for uh, we believe, uh, hard assets yeah. of, of probably, you know, probably £300 million or something like that. So... Uh, um, the, there's a lot to go at. Yeah, but I, I suppose that the point being that you know the asset of a, a bank license, which is hard to come by, is is never really factored into the. the no, price the bank, of banks, that, isn't that it? is yeah. that is quite true, and and so um, you know we'd obviously be looking to. I would have thought if there is a a predator there, uh, it would probably be an existing um, uh, bank or an existing you know financially approved business, as yeah. it were, because. Um, uh, yes, as you say, people, no one could just wander in from the street and however wealthy and just buy a bank yeah. without any any um, uh, vetting or approval these days. And, and that's a good thing. So let's conclude, as we often do, with a, a roundup of other goings on in your portfolio. Let's start with Treat, which we discussed at length in our second episode in October. I mean, since then, we've had bit of change in the uh, in the C-suite and full year results. Have you have you been following things? Mm, yes, absolutely. So I I, uh, I was pleased that you know profits came out broadly as expected, and uh, the dividend was edged forward very very slightly, as it were. Although obviously it's on a, a low dividend yield, but um, you know I've got considerable confidence in the new finance director. So the new chief, ex- or he's in technically interim chief executive, uh, uh, Ryan Govender, who came in as finance yep. director from uh, ABF Associated British Foods, uh, and I think he was instrumental in bringing down the, the the debt very substantially and reducing the headcount in Treat by about fourteen percent. I I don't see any great growth uh, this year, certainly not in the you know in the in the in the first part. But I think long term, you know, Treat is, is well positioned. I think the opportunities, particularly because I you know obviously keep in touch with them. I think the opportunities, particularly in the uh, I mean, they're very big in America. The the UK and and US are pretty well equal, I think, in many respects. But the potential in in China 
is for them, I think, is very considerable. Um, there are some huge privately owned drinks businesses in China that we've never heard of. Uh, and uh, I think there, I think treats see a considerable opportunity there there for them. So um, although the shares have come down quite a lot, they have started to recover, uh, and I'm very much firmly aboard. But you know, here again, um, the, the present capitalisation does make them vulnerable. Yeah. Second, though, I suppose it's a cluster of, of companies here. Uh, given the large role they've come to play in your portfolio, it would probably be remiss of me not to check in on the life insurers, the MNGs. Aviva's, LNG's and Phoenix, I think you have some, some exposure to all. Yes, all these. I mean, particularly given how, how much interest rate expectations have swung around in the last few months, but more generally just because of their, their heft within your portfolio. What's, uh, what's, what's been your take there? Have you been trimming things? Have you been adding to positions? Or? Uh, I, I, neither, neither adding nor reducing, but, but certainly maintaining. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, I feel very comfortable being in being in that grouping M and G, being invested in that grouping M and G of Eva, Legal and General, Phoenix, um, you know, I think the, the pr- prices uh, have been edging up, and so they use them coming down a little, but even so, are still very very attractive. You know, I'm obviously waiting as a private investor for uh, you know, April May because most of these companies have got December year ends, so. You know, you actually get the dividend, the real dividend flow coming through in yeah. in in April, May, and um, you know some of those payouts are going to be you know very substantial, and I, I I'm looking forward to um, you know to to from most of them modest dividend increases on an already high yield, uh, so I feel very comfortable with having them in my portfolio, particularly of course in my ISA where it's all tax free. And and that's the cash cow that you you would look to redeploy potentially into into other uh, other companies. Correct. That um, uh, at the moment, uh, you know, I'm, I'm able to reinvest the majority of the 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 dividend income within the ISA, and so you get the benefit of compounding. Um, so, uh, you know, in the old days, looking back. Uh, when when takeovers you know were more frequent, and I think I've said before that I've been on the receiving end of about sixty takeovers or take privates, that's given new liquidity, as it were, to to buy into new companies or add to existing ones. But now, obviously, a, a really good dividend flow does enable me to do that. I, I think one of the companies you said you you, you recycled some of the M and G. Um, dividends into last time, or the interim dividend was uh, concurrent technology. Correct. So there's the, the Colchester headquartered designer manufacturer of ruggedized embedded processes to a range of markets. On a very downbeat day for markets, they had put out a pretty strong trading update saying the revenues and adjusted profits would exceed expectations. Uh, you've been uh, you obviously pretty bullish on this, this company, John. We're also hoping to have their CEO, Miles Adcock, join us on the podcast um, next month. What, what, what did you make of their trading update? I was very, I was very pleased. I think that um, you know they they only just talked about the overall figures, as it were. But I think there are a number of underlying stories within concurrent and what is happening, even in terms of uh, orders and and development. Uh, you know, following on from uh, their acquisition of um, Philips Aerospace in the U.S., giving them a, a base there because. You know their 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 business is, is I think around ninety percent export from the UK. Um, the majority of the biggest market is America and American defence, and obviously all defence stocks um, have really had a good a good run. Um, you know the uh, as I said before, you know the the world is is very very dangerous. 
uh, defense spend in so many countries is increasing uh, and um you know it's it's, a, it's an ill wind as they uh, as they say but um miles i think what well, i know has has actually uh, really transformed concurrent um uh, and uh, changed things dramatically uh, in terms of, uh, sort of uh, speed of product development, uh, in terms of um, uh, bringing in, as he believes, you know, better quality people overall, making the acquisition in the U.S., uh, and I think they're now, you know, on the runway, as it were. And I, I'd be very disappointed if, if um, you know, they, they didn't really uh, fly over the next, you know, two, three, four years. But Miles, hopefully, in February, and the podcast will tell us more. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, yeah, sort of seeing one of your uh, investment sort of relationships uh, uh, in person. Lots to explore uh, in that episode, which of course can include any questions you'd like to put to John or Miles, I suppose, if you want to get in touch uh, to ask us questions directly on Concurrent. You can do that by emailing me at alex.newman at ft.com. Until then, all that's left for me to say is to thank you for listening. Thank you, John, again, for your thoughts and time today. My pleasure. And to thank our producer, Maddie Apthorpe, for all her work behind the soundboard. Until next time. (laughs) 